Uh, so my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm super grateful to be with you guys today. Uh, this past couple of months, I heard a story about Dr. Albert Einstein and him on the train one day, frantically scramming and uh, looking through the aisles for something. One of the train workers noticed that it was Dr. Albert Einstein looking for something. He says, hey, Dr. Einstein, what are you looking for? Dr. Einstein looked at him and said, hey, I'm looking for my ticket. The worker looked at Dr. Einstein and said, hey, listen, you're Dr. Einstein. We know that you're not trying to scam your way onto the train. Even if you were, it doesn't really matter. Um, so you don't have to look for your ticket. You're fine. Dr. Einstein almost ignored the train worker and kept frantically looking for his ticket. The worker finally went over to him, touched him on his shoulder and says, Dr. Einstein, I said you're good, bro. You don't need to produce a ticket. Albert Einstein looked up at him and said, sir, it's not that I don't know who I am. I'm looking for my ticket because I have no clue where I'm going. This story reveals to us two very fundamental questions in life that every human being um, based on the face of this, born on the face of the earth will wrestle with. Who am I and where am I going? Who are you? The source of uh, the questions of identity and the question of purpose. Now, you might not have woken up this morning asking the question of who am I and where am I going, but everything that you are doing in your life right now is motivated by those two questions, the question of identity and the question of purpose. Where is the train of your life headed? For most people in this room, myself included, uh, we find different ways that we can answer those questions, more particularly the question of identity. Who am I? One of my biggest temptations in life is to replace my identity with who Jordan is with what I do and my job and work. And in a lot of ways, I cease from being a human being and I turn into a human doing. Uh, that, that the way I think about myself is really through the lens of my job and how I'm doing. And work is a way that so many people try to find their identity. David Kim is the executive director at the Center for Faith and Work, and he spends a good amount of time talking about how these two things play together. And he says that where most of us get it wrong is that uh, work is supposed to be the expression of our identity, but not the source of it. This was changed in the fall. We look to our work as a thing to give us worth, purpose, meaning, identity, and direction, which is why it's so difficult for people to get a bad performance review or to feel like their job isn't meeting an ultimate need. Our work wasn't meant to give us purpose. It's meant for us to express our identity, our identity not be the source of it. But what happens for a lot of us is that we assign to our work a weight that it was never meant to carry. And we're so hard on ourselves in looking for our jobs to give us this meaning, and our jobs and our work was never meant to do that. Ironically, this is why a lot of people don't enjoy their jobs, not because you have an incompetent manager, but because you're looking for your job and your work to do something for you that it was never intended to do. Others of us uh, find our identity in our family, uh, in your spouse, or maybe your kids, or your, your hope-to-be-one-day spouse. And instead of having people in our lives that we enjoy, people that we, um, uh, we walk along life with, we look to those people to give us meaning and to give us value in life. And is, there is no better way to ruin a relationship than to look for someone to be the answer to all of your problems. Whenever I'm doing premarital counseling, uh, one of the first questions I ask people is, how do you plan to navigate disappointment in your life? And I'm not just talking about leaving the cap off of toothpaste disappointment, but I'm talking about character level disappointment. I love my wife, and I'm not just saying this because I'm scared of her and she's in this room, but uh, 
Uh, we have a fantastic relationship um, most days, right? Today is a good day. But there are times in our relationship where we have deeply disappointed each other. And we've had to come to the realization that this is a flawed human being that will always be flawed. Now, women are smarter than men in about 99% of ways, but I think men are smarter in this one simple way. Men don't expect their spouse to change. Women, you guys live under this ridiculous delusion that one day he's going to change. And let me save you uh, thousands of dollars in counseling right now. He ain't going to change. If he's never put lotion on his feet before, he will never do it now. He will be an ashy foot brother for the rest of his life. That's just what it is. You're going to change the sheets out. He's going to rip the sheets, rip the socks. That's just who he is. The sooner you come to that conclusion, the better it will be for your relationship. One of the um, reasons that a lot of people struggle and they're kind of graceless toward their spouse is because they don't even actually love the person they're with. They're loving a future idealized version of them and they're waiting for them to improve before they actually start to love them. Because deep down inside, whether they would admit it, they're looking for their identity to come from that person and they're putting the weight of the world on his shoulders or her shoulders and that person was never meant to carry that weight. This is interestingly why a lot of guys also are afraid to commit in relationships, they're waiting for the perfect person to come along. They want Beyonce with a PhD that volunteers at a homeless shelter on the weekends and cooks like Patti LaBelle to, to be their wife. And every single time they detect a hint of imperfection, they clam up and they go in the opposite direction. True story, I was talking to a brother who was dating someone and he was really excited about the first couple of weeks and man, he was just like on cloud nine. And then I was talking to him, saying, yo, how's things going with so-and-so? And he said, oh, man, you know, it's just not, it's not working out. And I'm like, oh, man, like, you were really into it. Like, what happened? He says, yeah, we went out, and she just had this shirt on. And I was like, man, that's not a good shirt. I was like, what did the shirt say? Did it say, make America great again? Like, what did the, why did you, why did you run in the other way? And he was like, yeah, I'm just not, you know, it's not really feeling a style, and I just don't know what it's... I'm like, dude, are you kidding me? His problem was not his standards. His problem was his idolatry. He was looking to this woman to bear the ultimate hopes of his identity because he wanted this woman to make him feel good everywhere they went. He wanted her to be the pristine image of womanhood and everything that she represented, and anything below of that was problematic, and he went the other direction. A lot of parents put this pressure on their kids to be the source of their identity, and this is why some parents will have their kids in Mandarin right after school, then to some fencing lessons, and then to do coding for the next six hours every single night. And we look back and we look at these parents who are loading their kids up, and their kids are nine, and they're stressed out, and they're like drinking coffee already just to stay awake, and you're like, he's nine, he's drinking coffee. Kid has a morning latte every morning just to prepare for his day. Now, I'm all for exposing your kids to, to good opportunities. I have every intention of exposing my kids to good things that they can hopefully grow and reach their full potential. But a lot of parents, what they're deeply hoping for is that their kid will be something excellent. Then they'll be able to look in the mirror and say, I matter. Look how great my kid is. I matter. And the quickest way to ruin someone, to ruin a kid, is to put the expectations on them that they were never intended to bear. One of my other favorites, uh, as an example of things that we like to put our identity in, and something that I've struggled with throughout the rest of my, for my entire life, is um, we put our identity and we wrap it up in what other people think about us and what other people say about us. 
I'm embarrassed to admit how often I think about uh, when someone doesn't agree with my actions or my decisions and how it affects me sometimes because deep down inside, what I'm wrestling with is I am what they think of me. I am what other people think of me. So if they're not happy with me, if they're not happy with my decisions, if they don't think I'm good, then I must not be good. Now, Scripture tells us that a good name is worth more than gold, and a good name and a good reputation is a beautiful thing to have. Um, it's nothing wrong with people thinking well of you, but as I was reading in my CBR a couple weeks ago, Jesus in Luke 6 tells his disciples, hey, woe to you when all, when all men speak well of you, for such as they spoke of the false prophets before you. If we were to wrap our identity in what other people think about us, uh, it would lead us down a path of constant anxiety, constantly trying to impress and uh, uh, perform for people who we probably don't even, if we were to keep it all the way live, you're not even going to care about them in a month. There's so many different ways that we have found to try to find our identity, none of them good. Uh, here's what I found, and this is one of the most interesting things that I found in the last couple of years of my life. Sometimes you get the thing that you were really hoping for. Sometimes you get the relationship, you get the kids, you get the, the work status, you get the, the zero in the bank account with an actual a digit in front of that zero, or uh, you've traveled to this one place, or you've made this accomplishment, you've, did, you've done this thing in life, you get there, and there's this deep emptiness in your soul because you finally realize that that thing still doesn't satisfy you. If anything, you're even more anxious now because now you're terrified of losing this thing that you've been in pursuit of your entire life. And your entire life now is not fulfilled, but it's anxious. Because whatever the things that we put in, our hope in people or relationships or status or jobs or whatever it is, that thing you can lose in the blink of an eye. Every single job, every single relationship, every single one of us will one day be no more. Now, Scripture has a much more permanent place for us to attach our identity, and it's a much better place than our job, our family, our friends, uh, or even what people think of us. And um, I want to turn to our Scripture for this morning to talk about uh, those two questions, who are we and what is our purpose? It comes from the book of Ephesians, and we're doing a series for the next number of weeks on this one epistle, this one letter that Paul, a famous apostle in Scripture, wrote to a group of Christians in the region called Ephesus. And these people were just like me and you. Uh, they were trying to learn what it meant to follow God, and this is what he talked to them about, their identity and their purpose. Um, and full disclosure, uh, at first glance, you're going to hear it, and you're going to be like, uh, oh, that doesn't sound terribly exciting. Um, and we're going to walk through that in just a second. It starts off in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. And here's the part. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. The question on the table, who are you? Who are we? We are chosen. We are chosen by God, not the other way around. And Paul is saying that before the foundation of the world, before there were, was a solar system, God had you in mind and God chose you. And at best, you being here today is as a response to God's invitation and God's choosing of you. Now, every other religion gives us some sort of path or a way to follow in order to bridge this chasm between you and God that if you follow the, the Vedas or if you follow the fourfold path, if you follow this path of enlightenment, then one day you will be okay with God. Christianity flips it around completely and says, you didn't choose God, God chose you. 
Uh, this past week in New York City, before the rain and the warmer temperatures came in, uh, the city was filled with the beautiful smoke gray slush all over. Every New Yorker's dream. Don't you just love walking outside and uh, dealing with uh, knee-level slush to, to navigate on your way to the train? Now, there's two types of people and how they deal with slush. There's one group of people who wear nice shoes, and you're like, you haven't been in the city a very long time, my friend. <laughs> and at some point in their journey, at some point on their walk to the train or to their house or to, to work, they're going to hit an intersection where they are forced with two choices. They can either turn back around or they can make an Olympic-level jump <laughs> over the three feet of slush and the mountain that's in front of them. Now, all throughout Scripture, um, in, um, all throughout the Bible, there is something like that New York City slush that you cannot get around. And it's this concept that God chooses us, not the other way around. And if you spend enough time in Scripture, if you spend enough time around um, in the teachings of Jesus, you will see that it is almost impossible to miss. It is absolutely everywhere. And you have two choices. You can ignore it and try to jump over it at your own detriment, or you can change your shoes and adapt yourself to that truth. Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples in John 15 and 16, he tells them very bluntly, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and to produce fruit and that your fruit should remain. Now, there's a couple of reasons why this is pretty hard for us to get um, and pretty hard to register in our hearts. I think one of the biggest reasons is that you and I choose very differently than what God chooses. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, against much better judgment, uh, I... Uh, got talked into playing basketball with some people after church. And I went to my wife. I said, hey, um, I'm about to go play basketball after church. And most people would have said, great, what time are you coming back? Not my lovely wife. Uh, she grabbed me by my two hands, looked me in my eyes, and said, hey, don't hurt yourself. Please, don't hurt yourself. <laughs> Full disclosure, it's been about a good year plus since I've laced up my sneakers to play basketball. And that was my number one goal and number one intention. Go break a sweat, have some fun. And don't come back hurt. Like, come back with all of your ligaments and tendons in the same place that they were on the outset. So I knew I was out of shape, and I knew that it's been a while since um, I, I played basketball. So I knew that the only way to, for us to stay on the court as winners was for me to pick a good team. So uh, we were going to pick teams, and I see this one dude who's, like, in the layup line, dunking the ball. He's all young, like a young stallion. He's just, like, <laughs> in so good shape. He plays basketball all the time, and it was my choice first. And I picked that dude. I'm not going to pick the old dude in the corner rubbing icy hot on his elbows. <laughs> like, why would I do that? We're definitely going to lose. The way we choose is merit-based. Who is the best person for the job? Here's what Scripture tells us. God doesn't choose like that. God chose you before the foundation of the world. The best way to understand this is not that you have come into the family of God by decision, but by God's will. And here's what I know about family. None of us, there's not one human being in the history of the world that has ever chosen to be born. Nobody in here chose the time you would be born, the country you'd be born to, and you definitely didn't choose the family you, would be, you were born into because you would have chosen a different family. Uh, years ago, we were um, <laughs> out with some family, and one of my family members came up from Texas. And this dude is from New York, so we were thinking that he, you know, had a little bit of... Uh, let me say, I don't, I don't I want to put this gently, no, sh no offense to my Texas people, but I thought that he knew how to navigate New York a little bit better. Uh, this dude came up with a jerry curl, gold teeth, and uh, he was trying to buy weed from people on the playground. And they were like, yo, who is this dude with? 
like, yeah, I'm here with the rices, and they're just putting our heads down, like, oh, God. He's with you? Like, yeah, he's, he's my family. None of us get to choose the family we're born into. None of us. If we did, we probably would have chosen another family. Here's what Scripture is telling us, that in order for you to understand a relationship with God, it's much better understood as being born into a family, not of your own desire and choosing, but rather a decision that has been made before. Jesus, when he talks about coming into the kingdom of God, he was uh, talking to a, a, a man named Nicodemus, and it's one of the most famous scriptures in the Bible. He comes to Nicodemus, and uh, as he's talking to him about the kingdom of God, he says this in John 3 and 3, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he or she cannot see the kingdom of God. Not unless someone decides again, but unless he, is, he or she is born, and it implies that uh, the best way for, uh, for us to understand God in a relationship with him is much like being born into a family. And those decisions do not come on your own. They're made for us. This morning and every morning before we get up to have church and have worship, we know so many people come from so many different backgrounds and church might be brand new to you and Christianity might be brand new to you. And here's my, here's my hope for you. Here's my hope for every last one of you. Not that you would laugh at a couple of jokes, take some notes and, and go home but that something would be born in you. Something would be made alive in your hearts. And when we talk about the gospel, it would just be different. It would just taste different than it ever, taste differently than it ever has in your life. It would just start to make sense in ways that you didn't even know how it happened or how it started to happen. And that is a sign that God is working in your life. Now, God first, before the foundation of the world, loves us. And that's what scripture tells us. And that's what it, it means a couple of things. If God loved us before the foundation of the world, it means that it is God's intentional desire that, um, for you to be in a relationship with him. God's intentional desire. It also means that it's unearned. God didn't look at you and say, yo, he or she is killing it. But there was, before the foundation of the world, if God made that decision, it's nothing you have done to earn it because it's impossible. You weren't even in existence. And that only doesn't mean that we didn't earn it. It also means that we didn't even seek after it. Christian theology teaches that God's actions of love come to us before we even seek after it. Now, why is this so important for us to understand our identity? And here's why. It is extremely important for you to understand that you are a part of the plan of God, that God is not somehow tolerating you because you've made a good series of decisions to make it to this place right here, but rather before the foundation of the world, when God thought about you, God had you in mind, and God had you in mind for a purpose. That you are not some Johnny-come-lately who just God tolerates, but that God in all eternity, in all wisdom, and in all love, God chose you. I once heard an author say that the deepest human desire is to be uh, loved by the lovable, to have the praise of the praiseworthy, for someone to be who is high, to speak well of you. If you were to think about how excited you would be if Barack and Michelle Obama got on their Twitter handles and started talking about how great of a person you were, You'd feel pretty great about that. We all desire the praise of the, of the praiseworthy. And here's what scripture is telling us, that God in all eternity chose us. Why? I can't fully explain. Ephesians 1 and 11 tells us that God works out all things according to the counsel of his own will. Only God knows why God does the things that God does. But I can say for certain that your relationship with God does not start with you in a good series of decisions, but it started in all of eternity with God choosing you. Now, here's why this is so important for some of you to get. Uh, most of us in this room have felt some disappointment with our life in one way or another. Maybe you are in a life season that is not the ideal place for you. 
And if you don't have the security of God's choosing you in all of eternity past, you're going to feel every single bump in the road, every disappointment, every circumstance that doesn't go in your way is going to feel like God's retaliation on you. It's going to feel like God is not with me and God is not for me. But here's what the scripture is saying. God has been eternally for you and God has been eternally with you, aligning your life in such a way that you would meet him. And that means that you can have joy in your present able to withstand uh, disappointment and suffering in any way, knowing that God is active and alive in your life, and you could have hope for your future, knowing that you are a part of the plan of God. And this happened in all eternity. The decision for God to love us was set even before uh, our response to him, and his love for us is independent of our action and inaction. God's love for us is greater than all of the mistakes that we have ever made. Before the foundation, God looked at us and said, you matter. You're worth something. I choose you. To have that as your identity means that you don't have to go swimming around in the pool of what people think of you in order to have an identity. Now, if it's true that God has looked at us from eternity past with eyes of love to choose us, then no matter what life looks like in front of us, we can have joy and faith and hope knowing that God is with us and that God is for us. Now, that answers half of the question, who are we? We are, we are chosen. Uh, the second half of the question is uh, equally profound, if not more so. It's, what did God choose you for? What is the purpose of your life? When God thinks about you, when, you, when your life has uh, been unfolding, what is it that God would have you to do? Better question is, what is your purpose? Now, verse 6 tells us what our purpose is, and at first glance, you're going to hear it, and you're going to say, I don't actually like that. It doesn't really sound terribly um, exciting. And here's what Scripture tells us our purpose is, that your life is to be lived to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. We are chosen for a purpose, and that purpose is, drumroll please, to live your life for God's glory. Now, all of creation from Niagara Falls to a dandelion has been created in order to give God glory, and that includes you. That includes your life, your specific life, with your history, your family, your education, your connections, that you have been created to bring God glory. But there's a catch about living a life of purpose. Uh, there's a catch that most of us don't think about, and it's that most of us, we want to be an end. We never want to be a means to an end. Everything in life that has a purpose is a means to an end. Everything that has a, a purpose, and the definition of purpose is the reason for which something exists or is accomplished, which means that purpose is a means to an end. Shovels dig holes, mouthwash kills germs. Everything in your house has a purpose. And most people struggle with purpose because we're not willing to be a means to an end. Most of us want to be the end. And if you're an end, you can't be a means to an end. And in a lot of ways, asking the question, what is my purpose, is uh, actually uh, the wrong question to ask. I understand why people ask it, but there's a lot behind the question that is way too self-centered and self-focused because we want to know the purpose of our lives so that our life will not be without purpose. But as long as you're asking the question, why am I here, we're missing the point. Purpose is about you being a means to an end, not being, and that end not being you. Purpose is about you being a means to an end and that end not being you. The better question is, who am I here for or what am I here for? And to really embrace a life of purpose, at some, time, at some point, we need to say no to me and allow ourselves to be a means to an end that not, is not us, and instead of us being the end, uh, ourselves. This past week, I was listening to a podcast by Andy Stanley, 
and he said a quote that just absolutely wrecked me. He said, those who devote themselves to themselves will ultimately have nothing but themselves to show for themselves. Those who devote themselves to themselves will ultimately have nothing but themselves to show for themselves. The life that's spent in pursuit of yourself will have nothing but yourself to show for yourself. This Martin Luther King weekend, we see this principle played out really clearly that if you want to have real purpose in a life that actually matters, you need to live your life as a means to an end and not as an end itself. And what, is, what do I mean by an end itself? If you're asking what is the purpose of my life so that I can be happy and I can be fulfilled and I can have joy and I can have all these things, you're starting off in the wrong place. Rather, if Jesus Christ were to live in my shoes with my education, my family, my background, my history, my resources, my friends, what would he do to bring God glory in my life? Uh, this Martin Luther King weekend, it's, uh, I was reading about his life, and there's actually a story that's really important uh, that's pretty lesser known about him. It actually takes place in Harlem on 125th Street between 7th and 8th. Um, Martin Luther King was at a book signing at a department store, and a nice woman walked up to him and said, hey, are you Dr. King? She, he said yes, and he smiled at her, and she took a letter opener and plunged it into his chest barely missing his heart. Now, it was in those moments where Dr. King realized that this movement, this movement that he was a part of was likely going to cost him his life. And if he was going to continue living, it wasn't going to be with himself in mind. It was going to be his life spent as a means to an end, ending uh, white supremacy and injustice for people in this country, that he was going to give his life in pursuit of something else. And quite candidly, had that been me, I'd have been like, nah, man, this is, you know what, I think there's a better person for the job than, than me. It's not about me anyway, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think there's a better speaker, a better preacher. We're going to put the focus on him or her and not me, because I value self-preservation. And here's what we see in the life of Dr. King. In order for you to have purpose, you need to spend your life being a means to an end and not an end of itself. And at that question, at the end of yourself, at the end of yourself and what makes you happy and what fulfills you, at the end of that question is, how should my life be spent for God's glory? Now, most of us, if we were to spend time thinking about that, I'm sure we can come up with a couple of things that would pop into our minds, uh, none of them easy. And I think that's true because real purpose always carries with it a price. It's never cheap. To live a life of purpose is nowhere near cheap. Uh, there's a story about um, CVS, the pharmacy. In 2014, CVS made a daring move that was unprecedented in the pharmaceutical community. Uh, CVS was going to make a decision that was going to cost them billions of dollars. They decided that they were going to stop selling tobacco products in all forms, and as a result, it was going to cost them dearly. And here's what the CEO said about why they did that. He says, put simply, the sale of tobacco products is inconsistent with our purpose. Putting purpose ahead of profit costs them billions of dollars at first. And purpose always has a price. If you decide to live your life as a means to an end and not the end of itself, if you decide to live your life and to, to give yourself in the pursuit of bringing God glory from yourself and not just bringing yourself happiness, it is going to cost you dearly. It might cost you friendships, money, time, uh, energy, whatever, but it will not come free. Now, I think because we're so easily, and speaking personally, I'm so quick to wander. Uh, there's a song lyric that I love. It says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Uh, prone to leave the God I love. And I feel like that line describes me perfectly. 
uh, because we're so easily and prone to wander, Scripture gives us a command on what we should do on how we can turn our eyes back on the prize, so to speak. And it comes from the book of Hebrews, the 12th chapter, two verses 2 through 3. It says, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. Scripture tells us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the one who chose, not was forced to, the one who chose to enter into life and to give himself as a means to the end. And what is that end that you and I could be reconciled to God? I often think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating blood with the, the image, the vivid imagery of what was going to come up to him in the next number of hours and day of his life, or the suffering, the pain, the excruciating pain that he was going to endure. And Jesus chose to be a means to an end and not an end of itself. The hands that call us to be a means to an end and not an end have nail pierces in them. They are the hands of love that God has expressed to us in Christ that there was no limit, there was no uh, boundary that Christ was not willing to cross in order to secure us for God. Now the gospel compels us with Jesus' nail-pierced hands to come to him and to lay down our lives, not out of duty or obligation, but out of appreciation and gratitude for the one who's already given us his all. In Christian circles, there's something called communion, and communion is a practice that Christians do with their hands and their feet to physically uh, force ourselves to take our eyes off of ourselves and put it on Christ, the one who lived not as an end of himself, of himself but as a means to an end, uh, to give us life and new life with him. And communion has been done for thousands of years. It's a practice that's intended to make you take your eyes off of yourself and put it back on God. Now, there's some bread or wafers that we have that represent Jesus's body, which is broken for us for um, in, for the forgiveness of our sins, and some grape juice which represents his blood, which was poured out for us, given for us to show God's love for us, his ridiculous love for us, poured out even before the foundation of the world. Now, if you place your faith in Christ, we would love for you during this next song to come and to receive these elements. And if you don't know where you stand with your relationship with God, we would welcome you to stay in your seat and to just think about some of these words. But as you come, uh, for those of you who will be receiving communion, uh, come and to receive um, from Jesus, the marching orders for you to lay your life down and to be a, a means to an end and not an end of itself, knowing that God himself is with us. Let me pray for us. Lord, uh, I am available to you. Whatever you want me to do, God, whatever you want us to go, God, help us to be available to you in the fullest form. God, you know all of the reasons that we would shriek back and in fear and in apprehension. But God, remind us that you are eternally with us. Remind us that you are eternally for us. Remind us that there's nothing that can separate us from your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.